0: Lord, do come now into our midst into this world come with your hope come with your light come lord we pray in jesus name amen <clears throat> over thanksgiving break i was i finished reading a fascinating uh, book by one of the pilots who flew um, during the Battle of Britain in World War II. The book was by Jeffrey Wellum. It was called First Light. And in the book, Wellum describes a strange inversion that happened to him during the war. While his country was coming under attack, from time to time he would go from his base where he was flying two or three sorties a day, and his life was interwoven with those of his fellow pilots, he would go from there to the home that he grew up in and spend time with his mom and dad, and then return to the base. And in the midst of all of that, his home no longer felt like home. It was wonderful and secure to see mom and dad again, but I don't know, things weren't quite the same for some reason. I found I was fidgety and and unable to converse easily. An effort was required when it should have been so easy. As always, my room was ready for me. Not a thing changed. It's a strange situation. When I'm away from the squadron, I want to get back again. And when I'm on my way back, I want to turn around and go far away. But squadron life has such a hold over me. What a great analogy for the way that you and I experience How our home has been, our experience of home has been shattered, not only in these last nine months as a result of the COVID virus, but over the whole length of our lives as a result of a world war of a very different sort, as a result of a spiritual upheaval that has uprooted all of us as human beings in a fallen world in all places in time. The Bible has a really unique way of making sense of the world that we live in. And in the heart of that understanding is the conviction that, contrary to all appearances, this world in which we live is not our home, at least not our ultimate home. The Bible's way of making sense of the world and our place, and it rests on four crucial ideas. Here's the first one. God made us for relationship with himself. We exist by God's choice, and he made us for relationship with himself. That's why we're here. It is our one primary purpose as human beings, to find our home in God. Not in the world, or in anyone, or anything, or any circumstance that is a part of this world, but in God who made this world. Have you ever stopped to just think about that? That God made you for this express purpose, to be in a love relationship with him for eternity? John chapter 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, my father will love him and will come to him and we will make our home with him. God wants us to find our meaning In him, to find our peace in him, to find our our place of belonging in him, to find our happiness in him, to find our security in him, to find our life in him, to find our home in him. Have you discovered yet the reason that God created you and put you here? How would you answer the question, why am I here? First, God made us for a relationship with himself. Here's the second crucial idea. We are all alienated from God. We are all exiled. We are all far from home. Apart from God doing something to change it, we are all spiritually homeless people. Just like Wellam going home from his base during the war and becoming confused about which one was his true home and which one was just his temporary residence, we human beings here on this earth are alienated from our true home which is God himself. Paul talks about this in Exodus chapter 2, when he talks about us being separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, foreigners to the covenants, without hope, without God in the world, far away from God. What is your experience? Does God feel near to you or does God feel far from you? And if he feels far from you, why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose that God who made us to be in relationship with him would feel far from us? Well, that leads to the third crucial idea. First, God made us for relationship with himself. Second, we're all alienated from God. We're all far from home. Third, without exception, we are all looking for home. And also, without exception, we are all looking in the wrong direction. We're all looking for home. Henry Nouwen, in his uh, fascinating book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, says, there is something within me that lies far beyond the ups and downs of a busy life, something that represents the ongoing yearning of the human spirit, the yearning for a final return, an unambiguous sense of safety, a lasting home. But in spite of that fact, The fact that there is a home that is made for us, that is waiting for us, a home for which we were made, and there is a longing for that home inside all of us, in spite of all of that, that longing within us for home, we are a spiritually homeless people. And we will never stop settling for the spiritual equivalent of a bridge to push our grocery cart under and spread out our blankets beneath. The biblical term for this is idolatry. Looking to something that isn't home, that can't be home, to be home for us. When we hear the word idol, what comes to most of our minds is a little carved statue perched on a pedestal. But an idol is anything that we put in God's place. It's anything short of God that we look to, to be for us and to do for us what only God can be and do. So another way to think about an idol is a counterfeit home. Idols are the places that we turn to to give us peace, to give us a sense of belonging, to give our lives meaning, to make us happy. In search of those things, we inevitably turn and look in every direction but up. We're encouraged in this by the culture that surrounds us, aren't we? especially the aggressive consumer culture that seeks relentlessly to sell us happiness in a bottle or happiness on a plate or happiness in a box or happiness on a hanger or happiness on four wheels. The narrative of our surrounding culture is this. Find the thing that makes you happy and when at last you find it, cling to it forever, or at least until you get tired of it and it makes you no longer happy And then find a new thing that will make you happy forever and cling to that. So we have half a world of disappointed people who are frantically chasing after and half a world of despairing people who have given up on chasing after that thing that will finally make them happy. So let's zoom in here a little bit closer. This is where it gets, I think, a little bit challenging. As we said, we're all idolaters, but idols can be really hard to recognize. That's because they're not often what we expect. How many of you have a little shrine in your basement with a little carved figurine on it before which you offer goat and animal sacrifices on a weekly basis? Anybody? Nope. Nobody. So none of us are idolaters, right? Well, wrong. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, When you didn't know God, you were slaves to things that are really not God's at all. How many of us have idols, according to the Bible? All of us. It's part of how our fallen human hearts are bent. So what are some of these idols? Well, where do we look? For love, for joy, for peace, for belonging, purpose, happiness, fulfillment, we can look in several directions. Obviously, we can look to negative things, things that are sinful and destructive in and of themselves, things like pornography or gambling or illegal drugs, all of which, by the way, during the pandemic, have have, uh, increased dramatically in uh, the amount of people involved in them. The problems connected with these sort of negative idols are obvious. They are destructive things, things that hurt us, and things that hurt the heart of God. But there are other less obvious things that can become idols. Sometimes, maybe even often, our idols are not bad things at all. That's why they can be so hard to recognize. Here are some of the neutral things that can become idols. Things that are not inherently bad in and of themselves, or good. Things such as food, or sleep, or shopping. Sports, exercise, books, travel, adventure, video games hobbies. Here are three examples of neutral things that have turned into idols during the pandemic. Alcohol. One survey found that during this pandemic, two out of three people are drinking more alcohol and one out of four people are drinking a lot more alcohol. I remember talking to a guy at Payless who worked at Payless uh, in the month or two after the pandemic began. I said, so tell me what you're noticing about your customers. He said, I'll tell you what I'm seeing. Alcohol sales have shot through the roof. Another one is screen-based entertainment. Online streaming doubled when COVID hit. At one point, the average person spent six and a half hours online involved in some sort of entertainment a day. And eating. The average amount of extra weight that we've gained went from the coronavirus 5 in May to the quarantine 15 in August now, in October, it was the COVID-19, and on it goes. Now, in addition to negative and neutral things, there are also positive things, things that are inherently good, things that have been given to us as gifts from God that can also become idols. Things such as our husband or our wife, our children, our family, our friendships, our health, our home, our gifts and our abilities, our work, our church, our ministry, our holiday traditions. Anything can become an idol. I remember a scene in the movie, uh, the Western Silverado, where one of the characters adopts a stray dog and his partners say something like, You never know what strange thing his heart will fall for. Well, that's true of all of our hearts, isn't it? When it comes to neutral and positive things, the problem is not with the thing itself, obviously. The problem is when it becomes disproportionate in the place that it has in our hearts and the hold that it has on us. Wait, my husband? My children? I'm still stuck on that. What do you mean my children can be an idol? Or my health? Or my family? Or my church work? Even wonderful God-given gifts can become idols when we shift our focus off of the giver and focus solely on the gift. Shifting from seeing the gift as a cause of our enjoyment and start to look at it to be the source of our fulfillment. If we invest something, even a wonderful something, with too much meaning, if we attach too much of our well-being to it, we will inevitably find ourselves robbed of the very peace and happiness that we are trying to extract from that thing. Nothing that God has created can fulfill us. Only the God who created us and everything else can do that. In the Confessions, Augustine imagines a conversation that he is having with creation in which he looks for something in this world to satisfy the longings of his heart and he hears creation say back to him, we are not the God you seek. Look higher. How do you know when something has become an idol in your life? Maybe it's the thing that you reflexively turn to for comfort when you're stressed or anxious. Maybe it's the thing that you find yourself daydreaming about most often. Maybe it's the thing that you feel the most disappointment or frustration with. Maybe it's the thing that you lose the most sleep over. But whatever else may be true about it, most likely it's the thing that you cannot live without. A few years ago, the Bridges got me this t-shirt when they went to Monticello. It's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. It says I cannot live without books. I don't know why they would have gotten this for me. I love this. So if we were to start a new clothing company called something like Idle Attire, what would be on your t-shirt? I cannot live without As you think about that list of negative things, of neutral things, and of positive things that might be vying for your heart's deepest attachment, what would you say are your idols? What are your counterfeit homes? The Bible cautions us again and again about giving our hearts to idols. We just finished a series, as you know, on 1 John chapter 4 about how we are loved by God and how in response we are to live a life of love. And at the end of that book, the very last line says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's a really interesting line to end on. That's literally the last sentence in the book. It's going back to John chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 and the truth that stands at the very center of this letter how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is in fact what we are. Why are we cautioned to avoid idols? Because idols are on God's big time sin list, capital B, capital T, capital S. Because, because God is watching for who's naughty and nice. Because God is waiting to bring the royal smackdown on us to show us what's what. No, because God loves us and he knows that no other love but his, no other home but him will ever satisfy the human heart. God knows, as it says in Jonah 2, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. He knows, as it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, that we become slaves to things that are really not God's at all. He knows, as it says in Psalm 16, verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. God knows that looking to anything else but God to be home for us is the spiritual equivalent of building a house in a floodplain. So God seeks us out in our idolatry, not to expose us by his light and flatten us by his holiness, but to rescue us from our slavery to that which can only bring us sorrow, and to bring us home, back into his embrace. As Augustine concludes in his Confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God delights in, he delights in our eventual discovery that we were made to be satisfied and can only be satisfied in him alone. He is helping us to discover the inadequacy of all things short of him in which we are trying to find our rest in order that we might find our rest in him and in his love for us. That's why God says through Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, beloved flee from idolatry, Because he has, because he is something better. Which leads us to the fourth crucial idea on which the Christian understanding of life in this world stands. God made us for a relationship with himself. We are alienated from God, all of us, exiled far from home. Without exception, we are all looking for home, but we are all looking in the wrong places. And then finally, God loves us too much to leave us homeless, trapped in our idolatry. He longs to rescue us and to bring us home. So the Father sent the Son to bring us home to God. Which takes us to Luke chapter 15. Listen to the heart of our Heavenly Father towards each of us. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up. And he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, all symbols, of welcoming him home as a fully restored son. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a homecoming feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what was going on? Well, your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Oh my. Son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was homeless, and he has come home. God loves us too much to leave us in homelessness, trapped in our idolatry, He longs to rescue us from our exile and to bring us home. So wherever we are, he comes and seeks us out to bring us home to himself. Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love the line in the Anglican service book, Father of all, We give you thanks and praise that while we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. What does God desire of us in response to all of this? He wants us to repent. The first words Mark records Jesus saying as he begins his ministry are, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. But repentance is another one of those words like idolatry that we can so easily misunderstand and layer with all kinds of negative meaning. Repentance is not an impersonal word. It's not about following and breaking rules. Not first. It is a relational word. It's about where our heart's home is. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says, only in returning to me, that's the translation of this word repentance, only in returning to me and resting in me can you be rescued. We repent from something, yes, from sin, from idolatry, from self-reliance, but we repent toward someone. We are invited to repent, and in that, God is saying, don't just make it about playing the religious game, about following the re- religious rules. Run home. Return to me. Turn away from those counterfeit homes and make me your heart's home. All right, let's play ball. Oh, Winnie. Keep your elbows up. Here it comes.
1: All right, (laughs) right, here, JP! Get
0: it! Get it! Get it! Yeah, all right! All right, right, JP! All right, who's next? Let's get a kid over on the car shop. What's your name? Marvin Vincent Archer. You play any ball before Marvin? No, never played any ball. Well, this is a perfect time. to Learn! Come on! Listen to me. Watch the ball. And when I say now, you swing. Just do exactly what I say. Get ready to swing. Now.
1: Oh, oh, oh. Go, Marvin! Run for space!
0: Uh-huh. You stay on base and do just what I say. We got runners on first and second. And right. right. look, so coming right. to bed. Babe Ruth. Right. 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 Oh, right. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Go Marvin, run home! Run home? Run home! Run home, run home. Run home. Run home. Run home. Hey, Marvin, where are you going? Run home. Run home. Run home. Hey, where's he going? What happened? Hold and run home. I... He did. I... <laughs> this Advent, God is saying to each one of us run home. I love the way the New International Reader's Version translates. Psalm 91, verse 9. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home for you. COVID has messed up all my Christmas plans this year. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home to you. The threat of illness is is shaking my sense of peace. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home to you. Oh, there's all sorts of tension in my family about how to deal with COVID restrictions. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home to you. Everything is ruined. Church is different. Traditions are messed up. Home doesn't feel like home anymore. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home to you. Travel restrictions are keeping you from going home for the holidays and you're alone. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home to you you come to see some potential idols in your life. Some places where you might be trying to turn a housewarming gift into a house itself. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home to you. Much as you love them, your husband, your wife, your kids, or your parents always manage to disappoint your expectations over the holidays. Suppose you let the Most High God be like a home to you. This Christmas... Let's run home. Run all the way home. Lord, we say with the psalmist throughout all the generations, you have been our home. Oh come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom us captive here, mourning and in lonely exile until the Son of God appears.